Hi, this is Rachel Hine and Heather Levitis, Duke Plastic Surgery residents. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics with experts in the respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. We're here today with our subject matter expert, Dr. Mark Constantian. Dr. Constantian is a nationally renowned cosmetic surgeon and past president of the New England Society of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgeons the Northeastern Society of Plastic Surgeons, and the Rhinoplasty Society. He's the author of multiple publications, including his textbook, Rhinoplasty, Craft, and Magic, and is also an Associate Professor of Plastic Surgery at the University of Wisconsin Medical Center. Thank you for being uh, here with us today. Welcome. I'm delighted. Today's cast will focus on the all-important topic of patient selection with a specific focus on body dysmorphic disorder. As we know, not every patient who seeks a consultation with a plastic surgeon is physically or emotionally suited to undergo an operation that can result in a significant change in his or her appearance. Dr. Constantian has written extensively on this issue and we look forward to his insights. According to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, the DSM-5, the following criteria define the diagnosis of body dysmorphic disorder, BDD a preoccupation with one or more perceived defects or flaws in physical appearance that are not observable or appear slight to others. At some point during the course of the disorder, the individual has performed repetitive behaviors. Examples are mirror checking, excessive grooming, skin picking, reassurance seeking, or mental acts, including comparing his or her appearance with that of others in response to the appearance concerns that the individual has. Preoccupation causes clinically significant distress and impairment in daily function, and an eating disorder may be seen with body dysmorphia, but is not pivotal to its diagnosis. So before we get started in talking about patient selection for body dysmorphic disorder, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your first um, encounter with body dysmorphic disorder and how you became interested in this topic. I backed into it uh, innocently, but I was distressed by what happened. I had operated probably in the mid-80s on three patients in whom I thought I'd gotten great results and they were miserable, distraught miserable. And I had no idea why. One was a university professor who gave up her job teaching and lived like a recluse in a city where nobody would recognize her. Uh, the next was a uh, physician's wife who became angry and abusive and hostile and wanted more surgery for her real but, but microscopic imperfections that were devastating to her. And the third was a man who uh, owned an auto body shop. And the fascinating thing for me was that he had this very sophisticated idea about aesthetics. He talked about planes and light reflexes, and I thought, this guy really gets it. This is because he does auto body work, so he understands all of this. I thought he would be very easy, despite his limited education. He spoke like someone very educated in facial aesthetics. So I operated on him, and he was so distraught uh, that he tried to amputate his nose with a razor when I was out of town. It didn't really do any damage except lacerate the skin. But all these people had very good results. What I thought was the best I could have produced in this situation would be happy presenting any of them. And yet they were very unhappy. And when I tried to reassure them, I tried to talk to them, I tried to show them their photographs and explain that the deformities they saw were not there. They absolutely didn't believe me. And all of them wanted more surgery. 
and I never operated on again on any of them. Uh, the second woman I told I can take care of that little bump in your inner wall. And at a year, when it came to a year, I said, okay, we're finished. And she said, what do you mean? You said you could fix this. I said, I can, but I won't. Because the first surgery disequilibrated you so much, and I don't really understand why, which is true at the point at that time. And I don't know what I did, but you were so upset, it took you so many months to get back to equilibrium, that I don't want to do it again. And I don't think she's had more surgery. So she left in the house. And I thought, I'm going to find out what I did to these people. Because it made no sense to me that, that, that the problems weren't imaginary, the problems were imaginary, and that even though they saw them, I couldn't talk them out of the ideas they held. They were absolutely positive that these things existed, and they blamed me, and they wanted more surgery just to get help. They thought that the, the feeling they had was that somehow I'd just been totally incompetent. Uh, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a, a problem of healing. It was a problem of the surgeon really being no good. So I went to the literature, and I read, and I read the version of the criteria that existed in the mid-80s, which was pretty similar, uh, although instead of saying it was a perceived problem, they used to say an imaginary deformity. So this new definition is a little tied to the patients. But, but the piece, missing piece for plastic surgeons, there were really two missing pieces for plastic surgeons. One was we saw different patients than the mental health professionals were talking about. They saw patients uh, who were in whom the diagnosis had been made, usually, and were coming in for surgery, uh, excuse me, coming in for treatment once a week. And we saw patients who were coming in for surgery, so though their criteria didn't help us. Secondly, um, lost my train of thought. That's okay. It's fine. Um, Everything all the time. <laughs> you were talking about the two things that. Yeah. Oh, the the other thing that was missing was the etiology that really bugged me. I mean, why should this happen to some people? And still, the etiology is unexplained in the mental health literature. The best experts at this point still say that this problem happens just out of the blue to some people in adolescence or the early teen years. And then all the things you talked about happen and their lives fall apart and their self-esteem goes down and they get depressed and then they develop eating disorders or depression or obsessive compulsive disorder or social anxiety disorder, all this stuff has been studied. Um, and the worst patients commit suicide, and we really don't know why. Uh, it may be a neurotransmitter we haven't identified, even though we've looked, or it may be a genetic abnormality that we can't find. Uh, and when we look at MRIs, the thalamus and the limbic system all light up, and they say, well, this is the worry circuit of the brain, isn't that interesting? All that to me was not helpful, and it's still not helpful. And so I began to think, I better try to figure out why this is happening. So my, my connection to it came on very innocently, and then as time went on, I began to get interested. So you kind of started talking about the definition versus your experience. So in your experience, what kind of associations did you make with these patients? Um, you know, you talked about how the mental health professional um, now associates it with more of an anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder um, rather than what the DSM-3 uh, criteria had um, originally defined it to be. Can you talk more about uh, the associations that you find with body dysmorphic disorder? The things that were prominent to me 
where the, the patients were, they lived at the extremes. They were either the sort of disempowered patient who you asked, what would you like? Well, I don't know, what do you think? These are always clues to plastic surgeons. If you're a bad patient, a patient you can't discover what he or she wants. Well, what's, what's wrong with you? Know, well, I'm not sure. I think maybe it's this area, or I think maybe it's there, I'm not sure. Or, and the, this is the person who forgets all his or her appointments and doesn't show up for lab work and needs to be called into the office after regular checkups. Or you get the opposite extreme, the grandiose patient who expects a discount, wants to be seen on weekends because they're so important, doesn't have time for the usual lab work, and you make all kinds of exceptions for them. So they're, they, they, aren't, they don't act like functional adults. Um, they often have either hidden or very obvious self-esteem issues. Um, they misinterpret what I say or they, they metabolize it. They distort what I say into some, some meaning that I, that I never had and that most people wouldn't conclude from what I said. For example, I'll say, um, you were, uh, uh, you got distressed after the last appointment. And they'll say, you're telling me I'm a bad patient, which is not what I said. Uh, but they, they can make it into an insult when it's, a, it's, it's an act of compassion on my part to try to figure out why they were upset and what I believe they were. Um, and they, they, don't, they don't take care of themselves after surgery, um, and they don't live in moderation. So those were all clues of the fact that these people didn't act like functional adults. And, uh, and the, the conversations that I had with them were not the conversations that you have with, with functional adults. It wasn't, um, this is imperfect, what can you do about it? It was, I trusted you and betrayed, you betrayed me. I, tr I trusted you and you experimented on me. You, I was your guinea pig. And these aren't the things you say to your surgeon or to anybody else you can have a relationship with. So it, even though they may have just trusted me to operate on their faces, afterwards, all of a sudden, they're accusatory and angry like I deceived them and um, were just dis deliberately um, untrusted. So all of that began to disturb me, and I began to put it together. Uh, I realized that a few years ago that I had seen a group of patients that all seemed very similar. And when I put their stories together, pulled the cases, they were similar. I couldn't put my finger on it when I thought about them, but I pulled the charts and started assembling data. And it turned out that these all had had multiple rhinoplasty. They also all had multiple other cosmetic surgeries. They were all the very depressed or demanding of the staff requiring unusual amounts of time. And the great majority, something like 80%, had recounted stories of childhood abuse or neglect. So just in my discussions with them as a surgeon, out. Uh, and uh, so I thought, okay, there's got to be, be something to this. And that the kind of behavior that I was observing was what you observe in people who get abused and neglected. They don't act like just functional adults. And I thought, well, maybe the things that go, that we see as body dysmorphic disorder didn't start like, out of the blue for some incredible reason, but that they're all connected to what happened previously, maybe BDD is a kind of post-traumatic stress disorder. So, because it, it has a lot of the characteristics of, of PTSD. It has all the brain characteristics, the identical brain characteristics on functional MRI, and a lot of the, the 
behaviors and the addictions and the dysregulated behavior and the living on the extremes uh, and the suicide attempts all fit with the PTSD diagnosis. So I began to read about more of the childhood trauma literature and the DVD literature and the body image literature and the uh, PTSD literature. And all of these groups had their own little prescribed areas of, of information, but they didn't cross-communicate at all. And so, as I read all of this, the pieces began to fall into place of a disorder that began not out of the blue, but began as a result of childhood trauma, with the self-esteem issues, and the family disruption, and the depression, and the disempowerment, and the dysregulated behavior, uh, and the childlike behavior, didn't all come from the sudden obsession with body parts, but, but were intrinsic characteristics of these patients because they'd never grown up right. And then they made the connection to some appearance thing. And then I came across a, a paper by a psychiatrist named Bernice Andrews, who's retired now. She used to be in London. And she had studied a lot of patients looking for the kind of um, shame that follows that follows childhood trauma because the ubiquitous end product of any kind of childhood abuse or neglect is a feeling of shame. There's something wrong with me. And my parents got divorced because of me. I used to get beaten. I deserved what I got. People I, they criticized me a lot, but it was because I really was not a very good child. My parents tricked me because of me or whatever. Uh, but somehow I deserved what I got. And she looked at the three different kinds of behavior that they of shame psychological behavior, what kind of person I am inside, um, the three I just mentioned last night. Body shame was one. Uh, right. you know, body, yeah. body shame, characterological shame, okay, characterological shame, behavioral shame, the way I act, or body shame, those types and they all came out of childhood trauma but the one that was the most common was body shame and I'm like okay there's the missing connection you start off with childhood trauma you develop body shame that's different from body dissatisfaction which we'd rather see as plastic surgery patients so that, and you then decide that plastic surgery is, is the option for you to fix it and so uh, the, the reason these patients never get better and are so difficult is because the surgery, it has nothing, the, the complaint and the surgery, therefore, have nothing to do with the deformity. They have to do with a sense of self-esteem, a desire to get self-esteem, which is too much to get the surgery. How would you typically handle your initial patient consultation, um, knowing all of these things, keeping all this in the back of your head? Yeah, I guess you talked a little bit about patient dissatisfaction versus you know, patient shaming or body shaming. When you see a patient, how do you initially differentiate this? You know, we're talked about, we are taught red flags based on our DSM criteria, but when you see these patients, are there is there anything you initially look for? It's difficult. You can't do it quickly. You really have to get to know these patients. Um, the, the basic criteria I like to use before accepting a patient for surgery is that I I have to be able to see the deformity, and I have to feel that I personally can fix it. 
But a lot of patients will, as they describe the problem, or as they describe the pre or previous surgeries, um, shame comes up, embarrassment comes up, uh, lack of self-esteem comes up. And you realize that that's really the overarching feeling you get. This patient is not mortified by a physical problem. And they know they're fine people, and they're, they've got a good sense of themselves. But this particular body feature or facial feature is imperfect, and they'd like to fix it. But that this facial feature is another manifestation of, of how rotten they are. That's the problem patient, because the, the issue is not the deformity. And therefore, whatever you do surgically, then the thing happens. And then the problem that happens is when people have been wounded as children, and something triggers a childhood memory of feeling shamed again, they react like they did as children. These were the compensatory things they did as children to get their parents to back away or but to survive in that crazy environment. But now those, those things aren't appropriate as adults anymore, that kind of behavior. But they turn it into the surgeon, so the kind of irrational things they're saying, you betrayed me, whatever. This is the kind of thing you say you know, to your mother when she says, I'll be home at 5 o'clock to fix your dinner, and she shows up at midnight drunk. You didn't take care of me, you didn't betray me, I trusted you, and look what you did. That's what you say to a parent who's abusive. It's not what you say to your surgeon. So all of the verbiage begins to get screwed up, and you realize you're not you're not talking to somebody who's talking to you like a, like a normal patient. So the part of the clue is to try to get a sense of the motivation of the prior surgery, of the current surgery, um, and to feel that I can personally fix it, and that I have a patient who understands that perfection is not the surgical goal. Perfection is the best I can do. The problem is that these patients can end compensated and motivated to talk the surgeon into things. That's why the screens for body dysmorphic disorder, for me, have been used since I tried one years ago at being developed by a very good psychiatrist who's an expert in this. And the questions are too transparent. How many hours a day do you think about your nose? Nobody can write down. They can obsess all day long because they're sitting in the waiting room waiting to talk the surgeon into operating on So they're going to hide it. And it only comes out afterwards. When the result is good, the patient's unhappy, and the behavior becomes angry, abusive, hostile, dysregulated, and so on. Uh, so I don't always get it right. The other problem is that you can't screen for trauma and use it as a method of screening for patients. I've done a, a study on more than 200 now patients looking for childhood trauma. And in my patient population, which is basically an elective aesthetic surgery practice now. These aren't, this is not a disadvantaged population. The overall prevalence of childhood abuse or neglect of some kind is over 80%. And it, in patients who come from reconstructive surgery, skin cancers, it's 70%, which is a little high still, but not totally out of whack with what you find in general medical populations at the same cultural level, socioeconomic level. But in patients who had multiple prior cosmetic surgeries, it's over 90%. What's interesting is that the prevalence of divorce in parents is low, it's 20%, so they don't even come from broken families. But the areas where my patients have been uh, abused or neglected the most is emotional abuse. That's way up there. It's 50, more than 50%. That's much different than general medical patients where about 20 or 25%. Um, drug or alcohol abuse in the family or a parent parent. 
three times what the prevalence in plastic surgery patients is much, much higher than it is in general medical patients. The problem is that that number can explain some patient behavior, it doesn't explain all patient behavior, because there's this factor of human resilience, which I also think the mental health people have as well. But you, could, you have, there's this quality of being able to survive, so I can't predict in knowing my patients what their trauma score is, because the nicest, most wonderful, most grateful, most easy patients can have high trauma scores. They've just been able to triumph over them. Somehow have this antidote to trauma, uh, which is resilience. And most of them can relate it to someone outside the nuclear family where most of the, most of the abuse happens, the, the, the caregivers, outside the caregiver, to some coach or some minister or some teacher or, uh, or some relative or grandmother, uh, someone who believed in them and who built up their sense of self and uh, allowed them to, to, to dilute what went on in the family. So do you feel like body dysmorphic disorder is more related to childhood trauma or lack of resiliency or both? I think both. Um, I think childhood trauma in some people uh, creates a feeling of, of, of worthlessness that translates to body shame. It gets attached to a body part. Not everybody who is uh, abused or neglected seeks plastic surgery, but many eat. The prevalence of childhood abuse or neglect and neglected morbid obesity is very high. It's over 80%. And uh, that's something, again, plastic surgeons don't know anything about. Because all this stuff is in the mental health literature. It's not in our literature, and that's really the problem because we do all this body contour surgery, and we don't know anything about these patients. I'll see patients who've had body contour surgery that come to me for nasal surgery, and they say, you know, I used to weigh 350 pounds, and I say, usually people that weigh that much have had rough childhoods, and they start pouring out the story of their childhoods to me. This is in the first interview, and then they look and they say, you're the first person that I first person, first person ever asked me. Now, they've already been to other plastic surgeons because they had their, had their body contour surgery. They've been to the bariatric surgery and gotten a psychological screen, whatever it's supposed to be. Nobody's talked to them about their childhoods, which is such a huge element in, in the history of morbid obesity. We're missing enormous pieces of this. I gave a lecture at the association a few years ago when I was just getting into this. And I said, uh, we, we don't know affects what kinds of childhood predate the patients who are the most grateful, or the most difficult, or require the most pain medication, or have the most complications. Um, we don't know why some patients, two patients with the same hand injury, one will get better quickly and the other one gets a chronic regional pain syndrome, but that's related to childhood trauma. Um, we don't know where chronic pain comes from, and the histories of a lot of these patients, and then we operate on them. Uh, when I was a general surgery resident, all I was taught to ask about was, you know, smoke or drink, you know, you have high blood pressure, and these are the things I screen for. Uh, and still, that's all generally people look for in the medical traps. There are other traps. I, I had just been reading your um, your KRS editorial that you wrote in response to uh, the DSM-5 when it first came out yeah. on how yeah. potentially plastic surgeons and psychiatrists should be working in conjunction to come up with these criteria. 
Um, I just wonder if, you know, since that editorial, your opinion has changed or how it's evolved, if at all. I actually believe it more than I did um, for a couple of reasons. The first is that after Dr. Edgerton died just recently, they're going to devote a special issue of the Journal of Pain and Facial Surgery to him, for which I wrote the paper because he was a big influence on me since I was at the University of Virginia at the same time he was, and he was very interested in body image. He had a psychiatrist in the department. And when I went back and read some of his earlier papers in preparation for a book I just wrote, John on Body Image, he first wrote about a patient with what he called minimal deformity in 1964 or 65. Now, the DSM-5, the DSM-3R, which is the first time EDD was described, didn't come out until 1957. So he predated it by more than two decades, and he just prescribed these patients exactly the way we describe them today. Um, so plastic surgeons deal with body image all the time. Uh, and we, we have a lot to offer because we see these patients in a whole course of treatment from the beginning through the surgery and the complications and the recovery. Whereas the mental health professionals are getting a little weekly or every other week snapshots. So we see them react to their environments and react to stress uh, and, and we have to add something. Um, the other piece is that the mental health professionals don't recognize at all for their part what plastic surgery has to offer. If you look at the diagnosis, the criteria you just read for compensatory behavior, they never mention plastic surgery, which is the way most surgeons and most physicians, dermatologists, other people who see patients with body dysmorphic disorder first encounter these patients. They're looking, they're coming in looking for treatment or looking for cosmetic procedures. So we need we need the diagnosis should be made together because the first criterion of a perceived deformity, who determines whether what whether something is perceived or not is a patient? Is the family practitioner? Is it the psychiatrist? The fact that something is subtle doesn't mean it isn't there. I see patients who nasal surgery and they've got airway obstruction um, and the prior doctors have been able to figure it out uh, and I examine them and treat them. That's not body dysmorphic disorder. And there are a lot of things that some of that. Um, and so the, the interface between what's cosmetic and what's reconstructive is very close and therefore what we excuse as behavior is um, depends on our and biases. The same reaction that you would tolerate in someone who's just had a cancer diagnosis or lost a body part from cancer or trauma, you would not tolerate from someone who's had a cosmetic procedure uh, only because somehow the medical thing, the reconstructive thing, the cancer diagnosis is like more legitimate than the reason to react that way. So we can't judge every aspect of the mental health and they can't judge really even the significance of the deformity without our input. So really that diagnosis should be two specialist diagnoses. Right now there are a lot of people going around with diagnoses of body dysmorphic disorder that don't deserve. And that was another question I had, observable versus slight defenses. The, um, the definition now talks about that being a warning sign. That seems so subjective to me. And you kind of mentioned that just a second ago when you were talking. How how can you 
how are you able to tell something that seems so slight or may not be observable? Is it expertise? You know, is it, or is it more just as a screening the patient's method? mannerisms? Yeah, as a screening method mechanism. I listen to the language. That's probably the easiest thing. Patients come in and um, if they say, my nose is a little crooked, or I've got this little bump and it's always bothered me, what would it take to do something about that? That's one thing. Now, someone comes in and says, I've got this disgusting bump here. Really, they use, they use disaster language. This hideous shape, and I can't take it anymore. And the, the, the disaster language is another sign of immature behavior. Everybody's got a small kid, three-year-old, falls down and scrapes his knee. They start crying because they think that pain is going to last for the rest of their lives. And what I always used to say to my kids is, wait, it's going to go away. And magically it does in about 30 seconds. But these people have never grown up, so they see, they see a post-operative swelling at six days. And they think, this is it. It's going to be like this forever. And the next day they're calling, and the next day they're calling because they have no ability to regulate their emotions and they have no ability to, to look like an adult would at something that's, that's obvious to what kind of surgery we expect to be healed in six or seven days. But the patients are on the phone repeatedly distraught uh, because of something that is kind of obvious if you're a grown <laughs> Well, I mean, that, that brings up another thing. You know, all surgeons have their histories, too. You know, what our backgrounds are determine the patients we like, the kind of physicians we become, the kind of practices we have, the kind of the patients, the, the, the kind of subspecialty within plastic surgery we're willing to do. Uh, and so the, we all have patients that we can tolerate and not tolerate, and that's that all is related to our, our own histories. If you're going to do the practice I've got, you've got to have a high threshold for being distressed. Uh, and uh, and my, I, my staff does, too. I tell them this is like having an oncology practice. You know, half the patients are really wound up and, and got to be willing to give a lot of TLC. Dr. Hedrick used to call them hot potatoes. <laughs> well, perhaps on our next in-service exam will be a question looking more introspectively at what sorts of neuroses plastic surgeons have, not just our patients. <laughs> so I think we have a couple of um, in-service questions that probably we've answered. Yeah, we've answered and probably don't go along with the definitions that you have given us, which seem more along the well-rounded, more aligned. Yeah. Give me the questions. Let's talk. About okay. Them. Oh, good. Okay. So this this is from this is a question from the exam we took this past March. So this is a recent question. A 20-year-old woman comes to the office with her parents because of her significant concern with the appearance of a scar on her forehead of one year's duration. Physical examination shows a well-healed scar that blends in nicely with the surrounding skin and is difficult to see at conversation distance. The patient's parents do not see the need for any intervention since they also find the scar difficult to see. Which of the following must be present to confirm a diagnosis of body dysmorphic disorder in this patient? The first answer choice is history of treatment for an eating disorder. The next answer choice is occasional social anxiety, preoccupation with obvious flaws in her appearance, prior rhinoplasty, or repetitive behavior related to her appearance concerns? 
uh, would be the last one. Uh, the I, mean, I see patients like that. Um, I mean, a 20-year-old who comes in with their parents, that would bother me to begin with. Um, because you don't need that much help to discuss a scar. The parents are sometimes, really, the parents sometimes they're overbearing, they're too protective, they're boundaryless, um, and uh, so they, and they, they, the, the, the patient has never developed enough autonomy to come in and talk to the doctor, maybe with one parent, or maybe by herself. So that I always wonder about that when you've got, you got an army of family that come in to discuss a small scar. But you know the, the circumstances, I've seen circumstances where it will bother a patient. Um, I, in fact, I saw a woman recently, she'd been in some, I don't know, fraternity party and one of the ceiling tiles fell and struck her and lacerated her forehead. And she's mad about that because it never should have happened. And so now she's got this scar and she hates it. And all she does is remember the idiots at the fraternity house and how the insurance company wouldn't cover it. And there's a lot of anger bound up in that. So I have to sort of recognize that she's got a legitimate reason to be annoyed and that to have bad associations with this. Um, and so I'll say, if the scar is transverse and I don't think it's possible to get it better, I'll say, I don't think, I don't think there's anything you can do about it. Sorry, I recognize you're ticked off, but this is really a good result, and I'm glad, I'm glad it wasn't worse. And some patients will be happy and go away like that. If I think I can revise it and make it a little better, I'll say, you know, I can just try to do something. I can put uh, yeah, uh, W-plasty uh, in it or do some, some, some kind of revision, uh, but you're still going to have a different scar. It might blend in a little bit better, but it's not going to disappear. So maybe it'll be 25 or 50% better. And some patients will say to me, anything you do, even if it's no better, I'll feel like, okay, at least I tried. And now, now I'll move on. And other patients will say, unless you can tell me it's going to be 90% better, I don't want an operation. That's crazy. So those are both correct answers for different people. Now, if that's, so I'm feeling my way through the conversation as I do that. If the parents tell me um, she, won't, she won't go to school and she hasn't had a, won't take a, have a job because of this, that's different when if it's a minor scar. Uh, I did see a young man just recently. He's got airway obstruction, and he's got, he thinks that his nose isn't right, and he's dropped out of college because of it. Uh, and the, the deformity is negligible. Uh, and I said to him, you really don't need surgery. You need trauma work. Uh, of course, I'll never get it. But that's, that's a, uh, a huge overreaction for something. What, is, what would it take to make someone drop out of college? Uh, a lot. So we have one more question, and I think the answer is going to be a little bit different because we have new DSM criteria, but we'll go ahead and ask it. Do you want to do that? Sure. Um, so this was a question from 2014. A 22-year-old woman comes to the office for consultation because she is dissatisfied with the appearance of her nose. History includes two cosmetic procedures of the nose. During the consultation, she also expresses dissatisfaction with the appearance of her eyelids, chin, lower abdomen and flanks, uh, and breast size. In this patient with body dysmorphic disorder, which of the following additional findings is most likely? Anorexia, anxiety disorder, depression, hypochondriasis, or substance abuse? Which is the most likely? Yes. Actually, the literature shows several of them. They, they've, they've taken they've taken eating disorders out, uh, but uh, 
if you look at, at the things that follow that follow trauma and, and uh, body dysmorphic disorder, you get a lot. Of, a lot of them are patients who are depressed. A lot of them have social anxiety. Um, what were the other? Hypochondriasis and substance abuse. Right. Substance abuse is, is common too. Either pills or uh, drugs or alcohol. Um, hypochondriasis. It's hard to know because it's a patient who's completely fixated on her appearance. But you know the 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 fact that a patient has had multiple cosmetic surgeries doesn't mean that they've got body dysmorphic disorder either. And that's kind of you do see those patients. There are people who are they 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 may be they may have had some childhood trauma in the sense that they learned in their childhood that the way they stayed out of trouble was to be and they still won't have to be perfect. And that's the way their lives run. And so any little thing, they've got the money to do it, and they live in a, in a culture, maybe they're living in Miami or in Los Angeles. Um, you're not going to see it in Oklahoma City. I'm not going to see it, I'm not going to see it in New Hampshire. I mean, this would be much more uncommon culturally. But in your environment, if someone came in and they were in uh, the movie business and they had these surgeries, it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, so the fact that somebody's had a lot of surgery and they put a lot of plastic surgeons' kids through school, I guess. Uh, but you know, if they're if they had the surgery and they're happy, um, and they coming in for another rhinoplasty, and there's a real problem um, because the surgery is so hard and so many patients don't get great results, I wouldn't hold that against them. That's some of my patients like that. But I still they still have to fit the other criteria. They have to be grown-ups. I have to feel like I can work with them. I have to feel like they they understand what I can actually do. So they answered that depression was most likely. However, in the explanation, they, they do mention that substance abuse is also common, as yeah. as is um, anxiety, anxiety disorder. disorder. Yeah, so, social anxiety yep. disorder. There's lots of paper, papers about the coexistence yeah. of those of that need. So that would be a tough That was tough probably question. a tough Even question. if you know the literature, it's a tough question. Yeah. Is there anything else you think we, we didn't cover that would be important to talk about? Um, only that both these questions are still based on the manifestations. We still describe body dysmorphic disorder like we're describing pneumonia in 1870 or 1840. We know the fever, we know the cough, we know the prognosis of the poor or the severe, but we don't have any idea where it comes from. And this is the problem. We're describing all the manifestations of the disorder without understanding why all these other things coexist with it, and what the root of the problem is. And this is why cognitive behavior therapy um, has a mediocre track record, but that's the standard treatment for BDD. You give antidepressants and you do cognitive behavior therapy, um, which is where you, know, you sit down with someone and they give you, they give you uh, projects. Um, you think your nose looks really awful, well, I want you to go to a shopping mall and write down the number of people that stare at your nose. Then, then it can't, your nose really can't be that bad, right? So now, write down all the things that, that you think other people think of you, or the things that how it would affect your life and people who love your nose. And you go through these exercises. The problem with all of that is that's all cortical function. And trauma is not in the cortex, trauma is in the midbrain. We, we were born, all our, only our spinal cords and brain stems are working at, at birth. And little by little, the midbrain 
things online and you begin to learn what's dangerous, what's safe. You know, if you cry and somebody beats you, you've got a very different view of the world than if you cry and somebody cuddles you. So this is how all this gets tuned as, as infants and children. Uh, and it's only when children start getting to be three, four, five years old that the real critical function really comes on. And it's only when they get to like first grade that they can begin to plan projects. You have a three-year-old child, you try to get dressed, you put on one sock, then you put on the second sock, and she pulls off the first sock because she thinks it's a game. She doesn't have any idea trying to get dressed for the purpose to go someplace. So it's this is the, the way the brain develops. And if the trauma occurs with an undeveloped cortex, which it so often does because the family is dysfunctional from birth, then all the damage is at that level. And that's what trauma work does, it treats that level. You can't talk somebody out of body dysmorphic disorder by explaining to them that what they see isn't really what they see, because that's all cortical, and that's not where the origin of the problem is. That's why our success rate in treating PDD is so good. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kinsian. I really enjoyed having you today. It was an honor. Thank you so much. It was great.